The rocket sat on the launch pad, pointed up and into the dark gray sky. From the bleachers, Marcus watched as he prepared to make history. His clone, a young boy, was up there, asleep in that capsule, waiting like some ancient seed, waiting for an oxygen-rich environment for damp soil and sunlight after so many years in the cold blackness of space, waiting to emerge from his steel husk and set foot on soil they could not yet know the color of. The children waited, asleep in that tiny capsule, waited while the world hoped that this turned out better than all their other endeavors. Science fiction has proven itself an exceptionally pliant genre. What began as an optimistic celebration of humanity's progress, forecasting electrified and steel utopias, transformed itself into a critique of those very same futures. To its credit, science fiction decided to use the tools of the genre to dismantle, critique, and question the entire human endeavor. And in doing so, this cadre of rumpled and unappreciated writers working in a devalued genre changed the world for the better. I realize that this is no small claim, but ask yourself, what did more to end the Cold War's nuclear stalemate? I said that like George Bush. <laughs> nuclear stalemate, diplomacy, or the widespread understanding that nuclear annihilation was a fool's errand, illustrated vividly over and over again by science fiction writers. I say science fiction did more to bring us to our senses by driving home the enormity of the stakes involved. One of the values science fiction writers have discovered is the genre's ability to literalize the figurative. Think about the way social convention confines us the way we fall in lines, silently obeying any number of socially mandated strictures on our behavior. The science fiction writer imagines that we are simple machines, metal assemblages, rods and grabbers, visual scanners, treads instead of feet, and inside our steel skulls circuit boards. And on the circuit boards are the rules we obey, the programming that guides our behavior. Science fiction takes our figurative notion of being programmed and transmogrifies us into literal machines. See how easy it is? Good evening, and live from Boise, it's Saturday night. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of ThinkBook Radio and distributed by TheSyncBook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is November 21st, 2015, and we're going to find out why in Time's Empire they were all slaves, and how hope is a thing with rockets. And we'll do so with the founder and organizer of the Philip K. Dick Festival, David Gill. David Gill teaches writing and literature at San Francisco State University, and his fiction has appeared at the Daily Science Fiction 365 Tomorrows and Boing Boing. He is also one of the creators of Pravic, a science fiction magazine which can be accessed at PravicSF.com. Most recently, he published a collection of stories entitled In Time's Empire, They Were All Slaves. It just became available November 14th, and it's worth checking out. David was one of the editors of the Exegesis and runs the Total Dickhead blog. We first met him back in 2013 for episode 93. And it's a pleasure to welcome him back. How are you doing tonight, David? Good, thanks. It's great to be here, Douglas. Great. And so before we went, before we started recording, I was <laughs> we're having our Philip K. Dick moment with my computer, of course. <laughs> but uh, of course. <laughs> I updated it, and now it is it's updating me. It it turns out it's not doing what it used to. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned. All right. Well, you got to be careful. Those things will take control of you if you don't don't show them who's boss. <laughs> I think it's already won. But you were right. you were talking about man in the high castle, and so before we dig into that, I just want to know yeah. your about your mind. When you read something, do you hold on to like uh, a lot of the plot, or do you end up with only? My mind doesn't hold on to plots. Yeah, I. Well, my strategy is to read a, a, a thing a bunch of times. So, the, yeah, generally the stuff I've only read once, I can't hold the plot in my head. But I have such a narrow reading window. In other words, I just basically read Philip K. Dick in science fiction. And so in, in that small genre, I can kind of go back and repeat stuff. And the stuff that matters to me, I read again and again. 
And when I do that, then I can get the plot. And then if I have the opportunity to teach a story, uh, then it's all there because I, if I, I've taught it, then I've taught it at least four times because I teach a whole, a whole bunch of the same class. So I just go through it over and over again. So in the course of a day, you know, I might cover Sonny's Blues four times plus, you know, a couple of times on my own in preparation. So by the time I'm done with that, yeah, I know that I know the PowerPoints of the plot and I, I can really start to see how it fits together. Uh, I found that teaching is incredibly useful for processing the knowledge that's in your brain and kind of making it useful and uh, accessible to yourself. What about the craft of of writing too? By getting that deep into it, do you see how you can actually see the seams of how it's put together? Yeah, for sure. Particularly in Dick's work, where the seams are often quite obvious, you can you can even see where their you know edits and cuts have been made. You can see, uh, particularly in some of the short stories, where a character will sit down you know two or three times in a in a single scene because he's forgotten that he had the character sit down already. You know? <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's, it's interesting. And that's, that's the danger, you know, the danger is that you get so focused on craft that it paralyzes your ability to, to, to do any of your own because the instant that you write something, you're constantly critiquing it and like taking it apart and, and then analyzing it before it's even had a chance to sit on the page for a second. Um, but at the same time, it's really useful because once you start to see how these things are put together and kind of like if once I want the other thing about teaching is it kind of helps you flush out your own response to something. So, for instance, you know, I always knew that I liked the story Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin. It's one of my favorites, but it took me probably a couple of years of teaching that multiple times before I really figured out well, what I like about it is the transition of the main character, the way he transitions from not being able to hear to hear finally hearing his brother play this jazz. And, um, so there's a way in which teaching is really a learning process. And that's, um, that's the thing that keeps that sort of exciting and fresh and, and keeps the literature interesting to me. Well, the reason why I asked that is because I definitely, uh, I read man in the high castle and I really enjoyed it. I thought, well, this is one of his, you know, one of his, finer works i mean i thought yeah. there it kind of was slowish at some point but it wasn't it wasn't so slow that i would necessarily put it down right but the only thing i can hold on to from that was was uh the jewelry i think yeah yeah which hasn't so thus far played any role in the miniseries as far as i've seen there's one scene where tagomi picks up a, a a bracelet that's fallen on the ground or but it's it's not the scene from the book. I'm kind of with you. I mean, the, the, there's a there's a phenomenon to being a dickhead to having read a whole bunch of Phil Dick's books where the plots just sort of kind of bleed together, and you don't really remember well, was that guy was that scene in that book or was that scene in that book? Because a lot of times the thing that you'll remember is like a little incidental scene. The, I always think about, I think it's in Slow My. I could be in any of them. I think it's in Slow My Tears. <laughs> the policeman says where he talks about a a rabbit that chased a dog around, you know, it's not, it's not essential to the plot in any way. It's sort of like a side story. Um, and for some reason that's, you know, that's those little bits will stick in your head and you might remember, God, is, it, is that, I know it's in the final trilogy, but which one is it where he talks about, you know, so there's a kind of a blurring. I, and I, you can even see that when Dick is talking about his own fiction, he'll, you know, conflate two characters. He'll flip a character and put it in a different book that's not in, you know. So that it's funny how he created this universe that just um, doesn't have cohesive edges in the same way that other fiction does. It really kind of just all oozes out and in different directions and bleeds together into this sort of living, you know, bibliography that we re reference as a kind of whole thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been... So I don't think you should feel, like, personally that your brain <laughs> is in any way inadequate because you can't keep the plots of Dick's books straight in your head. <laughs> okay, but so the the whole point of that was, you know, trying yeah. to figure out if if this new Amazon Prime show is any good, because I know that it, oh. it looks great, but it doesn't... Yeah, it... well, it depends what you mean by good, you know? I mean, is it is it uh, quality television? Yeah, I mean, those guys clearly know what they're doing. I mean, they know how to make suspense. The thing, as you just said, it looks incredible. I'm sure 
Dick would just be completely floored if he got a look at it with the sound off, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my criticism of the show basically is that they've, like Blade Runner, they've kind of inverted the moral. In, in Blade Runner, the book is really about how we can be like androids. And what Ridley Scott ended up making a movie about was how much like us androids could be. And uh, that's unfortunate. Um, in The Man in the High Castle, Dick's idea was that if the Germans won, it would just paralyze the American dynamism. The, the dynamism of the American dream would be reified. There would be this kind of vitality that was sucked out of the, the nation. And you would, uh, there's this sense in the novel of a, a round peg being pounded into a square hole. You know, and in the and in these movies, and I know why they did it, but the movies basically they have to show us the Americans resisting against this occupation. So rather than having the American dream or the dynamism of the American dream or that energy uh, uh, sort of stripped of its dynamism and reified, it's simply subverted. And so the story becomes like the story of American pluck as it goes up against these faceless, bureaucratic, oppressive lords, you know. And that's a fine. It works for TV. It's fun to watch. I'm enjoying it. But it's disingenuous to suggest that that comes from Dick's book, hmm. you know. What I, I was just did an interview with Salon, and basically my take on it was they stole Dick's pitch. In other words, they went into this, uh, you know, Amazon office with the idea, hey, what if the Germans and Japanese won the Second World War? Wouldn't it be cool how we could juxtapose, you know, American iconography and fascist imagery? Wouldn't that be, you know, just think of the potential of that. And they sold it on that, you know, but then when it came time to write the thing, they realized, oh, wait a minute, we can't have people just acquiescing <laughs> to this fascist rule because it's going to tick Americans off, you know, to, to, to think of themselves that way. I, I think it says a lot about us as a culture, you know, that, that we, we, we could have lost that war. And I think Dick's original point was, you know, while the Germans in, by degrees were a whole lot worse than we were, we certainly had elements of racial, you know, segregation, superiority, segregation, sure. oppression, all of that, all of those elements, you know. So we can't, you know, we didn't uh, kill them off in wholesale, but certainly slavery as a legacy rivals the Holocaust in terms of its cruelty and inhumanity and lack of empathy and all of that. So one of the one of the internment camps, um, we you know, in, in the United States, we put the Japanese in internment camps, and one of them is in Idaho. Yeah. Yeah, one of them is actually out here uh, right by where San Francisco State is now the side of a mall, but it was at the time this great big hilltop where they had a, a huge internment camp. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a point by which, you know, uh, and I've read some interviews where they, uh, they get to it a little bit to say that, you know, fascism is seductive, and part of this uh, miniseries is experiment is to see, you know, what aspects of fascism America would uh, be attracted to. I, I frankly, I'm honestly, by my own opinion, think we can already see that. You just have to look at the current political state of the world, you know, and particularly our country, it's getting a little more fascist each day. Um, and we're, and there's a great portion of our culture that's clearly attracted to like authoritarianism and like violent rhetoric and racist, you know, xenophobia and uh, all of that stuff. So um, what I wish is that they'd kind of had a little more guts and they'd really made a kind of cutting uh, thing where they would show Americans basically accepting Nazi rule. And then the question would be, you know, how would we as a culture view that? What would that, how would that affect us, you know? Huh. Yeah, and that leads me to think about Phil's paranoia, you know, and how yeah. he was definitely confronting the moment that he was in, you know, with these different conspiracies. I wonder what he would do, you know, with the Internet and the kind of conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, what, what would he make of this yeah. world that we're in? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I like to think that he would have the sort of – well, what is the word I'm looking for? Facility to sort of understand how laden with falsehood all of this is, and I and I think you know that's my 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 intuition is that he would get it. 
uh, like that he would know, for instance, that Alec Jones is full of it, you know, in my opinion. Um, I, I tell you that, that, you know, the, the 9-11 wasn't an inside job, you know, but, uh, but Dick was prone to real interesting and, parent, like you say, paranoid delusions, and a lot of them involved uh, sort of almost like delusions of grandeur, like paranoia that elevated his own importance to a realm that was kind of unrealistic. For instance, thinking that the FBI was bombing his house because somehow in a piece of his fiction he had gotten too close to quote-unquote the truth. I mean... That's uh, that's pretty close to delusional, you know. Like, uh, if if I, for, certainly if I were to think that about myself, I I, I think that that would be uh, warranting of a diagnosis of some sort of <laughs> mental illness, you know. Um, so, but but there's another aspect of Dick's personality that's kind of interesting in the sense that he was constantly self-promoting and was sort of left to be his own agent, his own editor and his own sort of promotional person. So he's constantly telling all his friends, you know, he's written this masterpiece and these guys working with these famous editors who also work with Bradbury and Asimov. He's constantly, you know, sort of putting himself on a pedestal. And then that pedestal just gets higher and higher to the point where at the end of his life, you know, he's speculating at times, you know, maybe God singled him out and communicated like the truth of the universe to him and only him. And, Again, um, those are thoughts that if I were to have them would, would trouble me about my own mental health, you know. And so I, I wonder, uh, you got to wonder sort of what is, uh, what is, what would the narcissism of the Internet and the self-importance of social media due to that aspect of his personality, that's the wild card. That's where we can't speculate, you know. Uh, it's, I, I, I can see a future in which Dick survives his stroke in 82 and he's like a virulent teabagger now, you know, <laughs> I can see that as a possibility. Uh, but I can also see a possibility where he survives the stroke and he's like, uh, you know, occupy uh, hardcore leftist, you know, I think, uh, I think it really could have gone either way. It would be kind of depend on which media bubble he decided to immerse himself in. And hopefully he'd be smart enough to recognize they're all bubbles and he'd, he'd stay out of it. Um, but I, I don't know if he was, uh, if he had that facility, particularly at the end of his life. So the, the thing that I find interesting is how, you know, this, this Amazon thing happens. And it seems like when P Phil has great pitches and that's why there's so yeah. many films, uh, you know, yeah. where they're taking a, a lot of the short stories too, because it's just... Yeah. The, you know, it's the pitch. It's a great idea. Yeah. Let's do this. How does it yeah. feel to be the person that, you know, when Salon needs a, a quote, <laughs> you're the person they go to? Well, it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, it's a huge honor. And it's something that, you know, I've been studying Dick's life for literally 20 years. And for, for 10 of those years, I toiled in absolute obscurity, uh, you know, driven only by my own passion. Uh, when I started my blog and started to get recognized for my knowledge, uh, things started to change. I mean, it feels great, obviously, to be thought of as a, an expert that somebody you know wants to hear my opinion about something, and I'm always willing to offer that about just about anything. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's, it has grown kind of suffocating because you know uh, Dick is just uh, has become increasingly unimportant to me as I move into writing my own fiction and wanting to sort of separate myself from him. I certainly learned a lot from him as a writer, both as a writer in terms of craft and as a writer in terms of how you think about what you do. Uh, and I'm forever indebted to him. Um, uh, but like I said, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly interested in striking out on my own and in, and in um, making my own artistic statements rather than interpreting somebody else's. Here's here's an, uh, kind of a off the wall then. So uh, have you spent much time with Stephen King's work? You know, Stephen, that's an interesting name to bring up. Uh, Stephen King was the pers the writer that sort of brought me into the first into the literary world. In other words. Uh, the, the late teen, probably 15, 16, 17, I didn't know what to read. I didn't have any idea what was good. I had, I had no literary taste. And Stephen King was the first writer I found who I liked. And I, you know, I, I liked his storytelling. And I, you know, I probably read uh, two thirds of the material that he produced up until 1990. 
you know, so I've read all the Hitch, The Shining, and Carrie, and uh, Christine, and all, you know, all, all of those, and thoroughly enjoyed them. Um, you know, then you, from a perspective of now I have a graduate degree, master's degree in literature, what is Stephen King's place in the canon? You know, he's a great storyteller. He really he, is, uh, but I have such problems with him because his voice feels so juvenile. Yeah, I mean, well, it's what, you know, it's kind of like the sports page, you know, it's written to be at about a fifth grade level or something, you know, I mean, it's not... It's but not he's designed. really good at what he does. Oh, yeah, he's the best, you know, I mean, he really, he, there's no doubt about the fact that he has a, a facility and a set of skills and a dexterity and an ability to characterize um, that is unrivaled, you know, I mean, there's a, it's, there's a reason why he made as much money as he's made and had as much success as he's had. It's absolutely warranted from my perspective, but, you know, he serves a, a, a particular function, which is to entertain, I think. And so I don't see it doing the same enlightening job of, of raising us our, and raising our consciousness that an author like Dick does. I mean, uh, I, you know, I think even Isaac Asimov, uh, I think you could compare Stephen King and Isaac Asimov in the sense that they're both really good at what they're doing. Um, uh, but what they're doing has its limits, its boundaries, you know, and, and it's not, Oh, God, for lack of, I don't want to sound like a snob, but it's not literature, you know, you know, for the capital L. It's, it's, it's a good story. It's a good, it's an entertainment. Um, and that's a pretty snobby thing to say. And I, and I have to admit that even I can see that there's no reason why you can't examine Stephen King as high art, or you can't imagine Isaac Asimov as high art. But I, I don't think that Stephen King or Isaac Asimov imagine themselves as high art, and I think that's an important distinction. But then, now, you would make the case that Philip K. Dick is high art, or portions of his yeah, body Yeah, for is... sure, for sure, absolutely. Well, well the, the brilliance of Dick's sort of career, his trajectory, was that he started out as a straight genre writer, and clearly had some skills and influence outside of the genre, but was writing totally within the genre. At that time, though, he aspired to write outside of the genre in what I guess we would call mainstream fiction as Hemingway, Faulkner, those guys. And when he failed at that, he had this brilliant solution to his dead end, which was, okay, I'll just wrap up high-end literary technique in my genre fiction. And actually, The Man in the High Castle is the first product of that synthesis. And it's the first time you can really see him firing on all cylinders. You can see him bringing in the depth of what he was doing in the mainstream works into the really skillful genre craft that he had already developed writing, you know, ten dozens of short stories that were published in science fiction magazines. Um, so that's his real, his real skill there. And I would argue that he's high art, and I would argue that he's the same as T.S. Eliot and and Faulkner and Hemingway and any of these guys that we look to in literature classes to have, you know, deep allegorical, metaphorical meanings in their work, you know. And so, okay. I don't think, oh, sorry, go, but go I just ahead. don't think Stephen King has the same deep metaphorical meanings in his work. He has great imagery, great plot twist. The Shining is an amazing story of family dysfunction, that kind of stuff. But it doesn't ultimately kind of fit into a larger uh, view of the universe that, like I said, raises your consciousness. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, part of our view of The Shining 2 is, is uh, the subtlety. The of, yeah, exactly. That, that's <laughs> what it is. Um, all right, so uh, before we move along, though, I'm just curious, you know, what are, what are the dick works that you can't, I mean, those are the... The ones oh, the you, things I can't put down. And the well, ones that know, you like to teach also. Yeah, oh, to teach is, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is the, is the solid gold teaching standard book. Uh, clearly, Dick, I think, was really, really knew that he was hitting on a bunch of stuff in that book and really is very careful to, to work very symmetrically with a lot of interesting tropes and a lot of interesting themes and really takes this idea of identity and and destroys it. I mean, every character in that book has this identity that then doesn't match up to their actions. You know, we're, we're told that these 
robots don't have any empathy, but then they do. And we're told that these human beings are, are, you know, thoughtful and compassionate and they're not, you know? And so there's this wonderful sort of critique of identity that I totally resonate with, you know, because as a teacher, all of my students are looking at me as this sort of like role, you know, and, and they're, I'm always, they're always surprised to run into me at the grocery store or whatever, you know, Mr. Gill, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, as if I should be locked in my ivory tower day and night, grading, nothing but grading papers, you know, but that's how identity works, you know, and I'm equally surprised to see the students in the, in the grocery store because for my mind, they're students and they belong in the dorms or they belong in some, you know, loud EDM concert someplace or at a, you know, smoke-filled dorm room or whatever, you know, they shouldn't be in the Whole Foods on a Thursday afternoon. So Dick really shows us the way identity uh, uh, changes our perception, you know, and in that, I, in that way, he's working in a long tradition of American literature that go, you know, it's the same as Huckleberry Finn, you know, where Huck gets on this raft with old Jim and he doesn't think that Jim is a person because he's his black man. And, but by the time they've, you know, rolled down the river together, you know, he's figured it out and it's become clear that, oh wait, he's, he's not just this character. He's not just an identity. He's not just a label. He's a, He's a man with a, a heart that beats and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, it's the same thing we discover of all the characters in the Wizard of Oz. You know, he already has a heart. He already has courage. He already yeah. has a brain and so on. <laughs> uh, what about some of the lesser known works? The ones that... Um, to, for teaching or just in, just, in terms just, of in, enjoyment? I mean, what are the ones... I mean, so Vallis is one that I can't... I mean, I I end up doing that one at least once a year, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's one you got to go back to a lot. That that I love that book just because Dick was so good at what he was doing. I mean, just imagine how good you'd get at writing books once you'd written 50 of them. Hmm. You know, your 50th book is going to be really, really good. You know, it's like Tom Petty. That guy, he, he you listen to interviews with him. He says, you know, we've recorded so many albums. We just we just learn what to do. You know, and you listen to these late records of Tom Petty, and it's like the the, the instrumentation, the sound recording, the, the composition, it's all just top-notch, perfect, you know. It's the work of somebody who's put in the hours and hours and hours of practice. So there's there's a virtuosity to the valis that I come back to, but also a, a humaneness and a and a, a just a kind of, Oh, it opens a place in, in, in the universe that you can kind of occupy with Phil and, and kind of be there with him as he processes all of this. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. And I mean, what a gift from a writer. I mean, it's almost like you're in his therapy sessions, listening to this guy, you know, bear his soul. Um, and yet he's doing it in a way that keeps you on the edge of your seat and entertained and laughing and riveted and thinking about it, you know, and like you come back to all these, again, it's the stuff where you just remember, like in Vallis, it's that story of the dead cat, you know, and one, and then, and his friend Kevin wanting to take that dead cat and just show it to God and say, you know, God, if this is a just universe, why the hell did you kill my cat? You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are those moments. I love Vallis. I wrote my master's thesis on time out of joint, which is a book that I don't think gets a lot of attention. Uh, I, I think that's a really interesting piece of work, especially as an early book, especially as a book that's a precursor to that synthesis I spoke of earlier, where Dick is merging his science fiction and his mainstream hmm. work. I mean, Time Out of Joint is very much a mainstream novel that only unravels to a, reveal a, a, a sort of conspiratorial science fiction plot underneath it. Uh, so those, those are all very interesting to look at. Um, I'm, I'm partial to Galactic Pot Healer. Uh, I've had a lot of fun reading. Uh, the one that, that I like that other people say is no good is The Crack in Space. Uh, I think that's a great book. Uh, you know, Dick's uh, writing about the first black president, which is fun to read about with Barack in office. Um, he's he's talking about race relations. He's talking about World War II. Uh, it's, a, it's a very ambitious novel that uh, I'm not exactly sure why it gets uh, swept under the rug, but it does. And it's got a great uh, set of twins, too, that are really nice to resonate with Dick's own twin experience. Um, so yeah, Kraken's in space would be the hidden gem that I say doesn't get enough attention in his in his herb, as Le Leatham calls it. Hmm. 
All right. So in Time's Empire, they were all slaves. Yeah, yeah that's the that's the claim I'm willing to make. Yeah, <laughs> and that's not just they; it's it's we as well, right? We I should say we are all slaves, right? It's it's uh, a it's a nice title you've got here. Tell us about this collection. Okay, well, this is a collection of stories I've written over the last uh, about two years. Um, some of them are quite short. Uh, two or three near the end are longer. Uh, some of them are, are what we would call flash fiction, you know, a thousand words or less, um, which is basically the, the, the length that I can uh, focus my attention span, given the fact that I'm teaching five classes a semester and have two children and a wife and the house and so on and so forth. Well, I want so to ask it, you about that because yeah. they really do pack the shorter pieces pack a really a strong punch, but I also wonder if you're responding to, you know, our culture as it is right now. And, you know, what do you think of, you know, our mediated <laughs> reality where, you know, how we take information has changed so much? You know, well, so I think we're, I think we're adrift, you know, I think, I think culturally we're, we're looking for a, for a, a North star right now. I think we're just completely, um, like I said, adrift. I think the the, the space, uh, the spacecraft, sort of floating, lost in space, not sure where it's going, not sure where it's from, has become a really good metaphor for our current sort of existential uh, state. Um, but, but you know, I think that my my big influence was uh, this guy Ben Lurie, L O O R Y who's written a book called Stories for the Nighttime and Some for the Day, a collection of stories. And his fiction is very short, but it just is very powerful. And um, just seems like uh, the key is to really strip it down. So much of science fiction today is just this elaborate world building that then is very difficult for the reader to pierce. You know, you'll, you'll have this, uh, I'll pick up a science fiction novel, like a more contemporary science fiction novel, and it'll, it feels like it's dithering, you know, it feels like I'm waiting for the world to resolve the way you used to have to watch the screen resolve on like a dial-up modem connection to the internet, where the picture would be sort of, you know, pixelated, very grainy, and then slowly resolve. Like that, to me, is not a fun process in science fiction writing or reading. I don't like waiting for the world to dither into resolution. So the you know what Ben Lurie showed me was that if you if you if you use the three act model and you create you know large enough characters that sort of stand out without a whole lot of detail, you can really tell stories that pack a lot of power. Um, and again, that's also a, a function of just the amount of time I have in a day. You know, I can't. I really can't sustain an effort the way Phil Dick could over a couple of weeks where he's producing a longer story arc. Uh, I have too many distractions. There are too many things in my life that require like full attention. And I, you know, I can't occupy this sort of fictional universe for, for more than, you know, half hour, 45 minutes at a time. So if I can just create these small little scenes, um, that I feel have the power, and then, like I say, use this three-act structure. Um, I, it, they they work for me, and so it's sort of a pro, you know it's a it's a it's a function of what I can get done in the day, but it's also a function of what I think um, people are really looking for. You know, I think ultimately what matters isn't the world that we build, but the people that we put in it and what they tell us about ourselves and our place in our own world. So I don't think that it's required to do this. Uh, intense world building that takes place. Now, I love when it's done right. You know, I'm as big a Star Wars fan as anybody. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not situated in a position to make that kind of art. So the art that I can make is, um, is like sketches and glances. It's quick. It's, it's trying to capture, you know, one or two small things about our relationship to technology, our fantasy about building people that are smart and better than us or whatever it is, uh, or our, you know, desire to have, uh, you know, transcendental sex all the time or what, whatever it is that we're, you know, focused on. I, I want to try to capture that, but I can't, uh, I can't linger in it too long. Yeah. And then, so the interesting thing to me is at what point, you know, where is that line between, you know, poetry, which is all about compression, 
you know, and then, you know, where, you know, something that's becoming more like a narrative story. Narrative. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a postmodern kind of a guy. So I would say that line is a very blurry sort of hazy patch somewhere between stories and poetry. Yeah. And probably you shouldn't worry too much about it, but, uh, you know, as long as it's working for you, but yeah, I should, I mean, it should be said that if you're, looking for long, immersive stories about very well-developed science fictional worlds. You know, uh, I recommend Samuel Delaney or Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury or, you know, I mean, the Kim Stanley Robinson is producing some incredibly immersive, incredibly accurate, really interesting science fiction. But uh, to me, it, that's not, I don't, that's not what I want to hear about. You know, it's like, it's like if your friend is telling you about his job, you know, the thing you don't really want to know about is, well, the, the logistics of the company and the hierarchy of authority and this and that. What you really want to know is, like, who are the characters? Like, is your boss a weird guy? Is there any, you know, who's the cut up? You know, what do you, what do you do all day? You know, the human elements of what we do are what's interesting. And the world is always going to be sort of incidental to all of that, in my opinion. But in those worlds, there's a lot of potential for imagery, symbolism, and like I was saying in that introduction, the literalization of the figurative. So you can take an idea like um, the, the idea that we're not going anywhere in our culture, and you can literalize that by creating endless traffic jams where nobody ever goes anywhere and everybody just lives in their car and, you know, commutes to the bathroom or whatever by, by foot or something, you know. Um, those con that that potential is always there, and that's what draws me to science fiction. Otherwise, I'd be telling my stories about people just you know working at Pandora or you know people in their castles in the Middle Ages or something that would interest me. But the the imagery of science fiction is irresistible to me as a palette to kind of to kind of go to you know robots as sort of unfeeling people and space travel is kind of un yielding ambition and, and and you know this uh, what blows me away is is here we are you know we're going to mars we've got ro remote control cars driving around on mars and at the same time there are still these problems with like war and inequality and poverty on earth and it's like is it, it, humankind are they're actually willing to spread themselves out into the solar system before they get their act together you know that to me is a endlessly fascinating dynamic that I, I just want to keep coming back to and talking about and, and processing because I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to come to my own opinion about people. You know, I hold a, on the one hand, a very high opinion of our potential, you know, and then I look at how we act and how we, you know, present ourselves in political polls and so forth. And I, I cringe, you know, so a lot of what my artistic endeavor is about is trying to kind of come to grips with ultimately how do I feel about my fellow man and myself and my my humanness you know because like Dick he, I think he we, we share this that we both um, really admired the potential of humans the ability to empathize to feel to be compassionate and yet there was this constant denial of those abilities the constant subversion of those tendencies so, you know, how do you reconcile that, you know, that, that, that people have the potential to be amazing, but they end up so oftentimes being crummy, you know, um, that's, those are the, and the questions I want to answer in my work. Hmm. Yeah. It, the, something that, that's interesting to me, I, I'm a fan of, all right. So what's interesting when you were talking about, uh, the kind of immersive experience, reading experience, it seems like we've some for some reason this is the kind of experience we want out of tv now we want a an immersive yeah. an immersive like and i think of you know uh lord of the thrones or i can't even what, game of thrones sure yeah sure. where people yeah. want a whole world that they can yeah. really fully inhabit but it seems like uh you know the idea of reading is definitely something that's not um yeah y y no we don't want it we don't want to pick it up that way. I mean, no. just think about Star Wars, you know. Think about the way Star Wars has penetrated every aspect of our culture. People have Star Wars weddings. There are there well, When are does people it become a religion? The, yeah, well, I know exactly. There are people in the armed forces whose chosen religion on their dog tags is Jedi. I mean, this is a, a, a fictional 
sort of vein, right? A, a single fictional entity that has opened up and become a kind of, to the point where you can get a Death Star waffle maker, right? To the point where they're taking stormtrooper masks and they're imagining, what would a stormtrooper mask for a rhinoceros look like? Sure. I mean, <laughs> this is a really interesting thing because it speaks to your, your question, that what we want is to step out of where we are and step in and completely occupy a fictional world. And that's a very interesting uh, request to ask of literature, you know, because the problem with that, in my opinion, is that if that's all you're doing, then that's simply escapism. That's simply preferring Lucas's world with, you know, Darth Vader and the Emperor and Luke Skywalker and Han Solo to our world with our, you know, quirky neighbors and our annoying bosses and our, you know, unsatisfied lovers or whatever it is, you know, I mean, um, uh, that's, I just find that kind of terrifying that ultimately what we're asking of literature is to transport us away from reality. Here's what's interesting in regards to that though, because when, when we're talking about literature, you know, most, for whatever reason, respected literary works are definitely really realistic. The idea of fantasy yeah. You know, so mm -hmm. this is what's so interesting to me about like your work or Philip K. Dick or Ursula Le Guin, where they're challenging the convention of realism to bring yeah. more humanity into. So it's not escapism, but it's actually somehow, you know, reaching the core of humanity. That's the goal. I mean, certainly, the, you know, I appreciate you putting my name in with those two. That's quite an honor. And uh, I, I uh, you know, that's my highest aspiration is to try to to try to work backwards. I mean, again, the, the idea that literature should raise the consciousness of the reader seems so ele elementary to me because my consciousness was raised through literature. I really had a kind of coming of age that was literary in its evolution. In other words, you know, I, I, I it was T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, that answered the problem like, why should I give a shit about anything? You know, like I had to, I couldn't get that from my parents or from, you know, friends. I got that from, from a poem, you know, so I, that's the, the purpose that literature serves for me. And I, that's the purpose that I want it to serve for others because it's been so profoundly uh, enlightening in my own life. Um, but like, you know, the key is, you know, the, the, the thing about both Le Guin and Dick is that you got to be able to create that world that transports the reader in order to speak to them and change them, you know? So it's not as if you can do literature without escapism. Uh, there is that element. It's almost like the way, you know, Freud would, would, uh, you know, hypnotize you with the watch to get you into a kind of relaxed state. You know, there's a way in which literature tricks us, I think, into accepting its truths um, by seducing us a little bit. And, and what I see is that, you know, good writers create worlds that we want to occupy. You know, think about, you know, I, I think about my own uh, teenage years, like when, at Halloween, we would dress up like the Droogs from Clockwork Orange, you know, or we would dress up like a character from Star Wars, or we would, you know, there's a way in which literature is asking us to, to be someone else. But there's a, there's ultimately a, a higher purpose to that. And it's to de-self us. It's to, get us thinking less primarily about ourselves and more primarily thinking about our place in the universe and our relationship to the people around us, you know? Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Cool. You bet. You've been listening to David Gill on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Information about Gill's work can be found at pravicsf.com. For information about the Sync Book, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Sync Book Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, but there's a problem, Phil. <laughs>
something happened on the day he died The spirit rose a meter and stepped aside Somebody else took his place and bravely cried I'm a black stone, I'm a black stone How many times does an angel fall? How many people lie instead of talking tall? He cried loud into the crowd